Welcome to The Scrum, the WGBH news podcast covering politics and media from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. I'm Peter Kansas, and today I've jumped over from my usual panelist slot to fill in for Adam Riley, who is in New Hampshire reporting on the U.S. Senate race. As we record, it's several days before the too-tight-to-call California primary. And although Donald Trump has the Republican nomination in the bag, and although it's widely assumed that Hillary Clinton will be the Democratic nominee, those of us in the press are still talking as if California matters. To help us explore why this is so, we have as our guest Sean Wilentz, the Bancroft Prize-winning Princeton historian. If you read the New York Review of Books, or if you read the old unadulterated New Republic, then you may be familiar with his work. Welcome to the Scrum, Sean. Great to be here, Peter. Listen, your just published book is titled The Politicians and the Egalitarians, but it's the subtitle that captured my imagination, The Hidden History of American Politics. What's the secret? (laughs) What's the secret? Well, the secret is American politics itself. The question is, how do you understand them? And... The book posits that there are two keys to understanding American political history that historians have mislaid. They've gone missing. And if you put those two keys together, you can use them both. Once you use them both, you see that they're very useful, and they unlock a lot of what is at the core of American politics and American political history. Those two keys are, one, that political parties are inevitable, They have been forces for bad, but also forces for good in American history. That partisanship is at the core of American politics, um, regardless of what the framers might have intended. That's the way it worked out. Number two, that there's been an egalitarian tradition. There's a wide, broad egalitarian tradition, many many traditions actually, but there's one that, that for a while was lost, forgotten about. And that was the idea that great disparities of wealth threaten democracy itself, um, that, um, you know, that the, that the polity will be threatened if, the, uh, if, if extremes of wealth and poverty get to be too great. Um, that was an idea that was lost that got kind of re... We, we found out about it again in 2008. And when the 2008 crash really hit, American politics, slowly at first, but now much more, you know, in a roaring way, actually... Um, it's really in some ways taken over American politics. But that wasn't necessarily true when I first wrote that piece. So put them together and you see that between the inevitability of party and the durability of this American egalitarian tradition, there are moments when the two converge, when the politicians on the one hand and the egalitarians on the other actually converge. And that's when major transformations of American politics actually happen. Let me play devil's advocate just Mm -hmm. for a minute about the parties. Um, I I, I think um, your points about uh, egalitarian trends are pretty relevant today Mm -hmm. for uh, anyone who's not asleep under a rock. But are political parties really anything more than a conduit for cash to candidates? Well... Yes, of course they are. I mean, they have different policies. The Democratic Party and the Republican Party stand for very different things. So, you know, they both get a lot of money from outside, um, and that's some, that's a great concern, great concern to me. But, you know, the difference between the Democrats and Republicans are are vast. They've gone gotten vaster, in fact, over the last 20 years. Well, and with Donald Trump 
<laughs> in the driver's seat. <laughs> we'll be going somewhere. But listen, let, let's turn to the California primary yes. here. You know, here's my theory. Mm-hmm. In very general terms, the position Hillary Clinton occupies, at least in the Democratic imagination, is not unlike that of uh, Herbert Humphrey in 1968. Humphrey, right. Yeah. Um, Icon to some, old hat to others. And while analogies are certainly tricky, Bernie Sanders, you know, appears to inhabit a sort of ideological ground, you know, akin to Eugene McCarthy. Mm. Um, He's pure but not viable. Any thoughts? Well, there's something to that analogy. I think the Sanders campaign has done its best to make Hillary Clinton into Hubert Humphrey and um, in some regards has been very successful at that. Um, when in fact the differences between them are nowhere near as vast as what was happening in 68. I mean, 68, the Vietnam War, was cleaving this country apart, and Humphrey had supported the Johnson policy. Eugene McCarthy arose as the anti-war candidate. So there was a real cleavage there. I don't see the cleavage being anywhere near as 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 deep between Clinton and, 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 and Sanders. But you're right. I mean, in terms of the perceptions of politics... Um, she has been labeled as the establishment candidate, which is odd in some ways, and he is the insurgent, and which is odd in some ways too. The, the, the question is going to be whether Sanders goes the way of Eugene McCarthy in, 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 for the rest of the election. I mean, after the Chicago convention, which was – I was there. It was quite a convention – um, McCarthy did My not... mother wouldn't let me go. Oh, is that right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was probably, well, I was in high school, though. Probably yeah. smart. I was just getting out of high school, and I was there, and I saw it, and I was there actually with the McGovern campaign, the first McGovern campaign, after Kennedy had been, been killed. But McCarthy, unlike McGovern and the Kennedy people who supported Humphrey right away, um, um, McCarthy did not. And he went on right through to the eve of the election, and when he endorsed Hubert Humphrey, it was really pretty lukewarm. Had McCarthy supported Johnson, uh, sorry, Johnson, well, it was sort of the Johnson position, but Humphrey throughout, it's quite possible Richard Nixon would not have been elected president in 1968. Now, the question is going to be whether Bernie Sanders, because Clinton's going to get the nomination, but whether Bernie Sanders will play the part of Eugene McCarthy or not. Well, didn't George Wallace, I mean, it, it, it it's... Um some people have said that it's not that Nixon won, it's that, you know, Wallace cost Humphrey the election. Well, there's a lot of ways to look at the numbers. You can sure. slice them any way you want, but certainly um, uh, Nixon did a good job of taking, keeping what might have been the Wallace vote, especially in the North, to him, and that was crucial. Um, uh, I don't think that Humphrey, I don't think that too many people who were voting for Wallace really were going to be voting for Humphrey too. It's, there's, there's numbers in that. But I think that the McCarthy difference was was crucial because by staying out, he demobilized a whole section of the Democratic Party, the left of the Democratic Party, the anti-war wing of the Democratic Party. And I know lots of people who didn't vote in that election simply because they could not stomach the idea of voting for Hubert Humphrey, who would stay so loyal to, to, to Johnson. Um, um, and so that gets into the question of parties and, sec- and, and factionalism. And, you know, all parties are uh, coalitions. They have to be um, because any two major parties is going to include a lot of different kinds of people around a set of general principles. But they can also factionalize. And uh, in the Republican Party, you've seen that factionalization being taken advantage of by, by Donald Trump. And he's, you know, completed a kind of hostile takeover. Uh, for the Democrats, it's a different kind of story. Yeah, it, it's um, b- before we get on to Trump, let, let's talk a little bit about um, the libertarians. Um, 
and I'll admit the principal reason I'm bringing them up is because Bill Weld, our swashbuckling right. former governor who was really uh, more of a gamesman, I think, than a politician uh-huh. and uh, a, a, a terrifically likable guy, uh-huh. is, as our listeners will know, the VP candidate right. on the Libertarian um, uh, uh, ticket. Do you think the Libertarians could throw the election one way or the other by siphoning votes off? I don't. I don't think they will. I mean, I think that they will be there as a kind of, well, there's a libertarian vote. It's very small, but they're there. But other than that, it's a kind of receptacle for people who can't vote for Trump and can't vote for Clinton. Um, I think as the as the um, as the campaign wears on, um, especially when the Democrats finally get their act together, that Republicans are going to see the possibility of, of Hillary Clinton being president, and going to cleave to their party more, and vice versa. So I think in the end, that what we're seeing now is a product of the uncertainty that exists. It'll it'll take some votes away, but I don't see any state, for example, where where they're going to throw it one way or the other. Florida, Ohio, I mean, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Well, Trump, let's talk about Trump, who to me is the fascinator in chief. Uh-huh. Um, you know, in historical terms, what happened to the Republican Party that a candidate who in the past would have been marginal, someone like a Strom Thurmond or a George Wallace or even a Ross Perot, this marginal character is now a mainstream standard bearer. Right. Well, the Republican Party basically went through a process of radicalization, radicalizing its base. The Republican Party had to be an alliance, a coalition, again, of um, small government, big business, you know, the plutocrat part of the wing of the Republican Party and the social conservative wing of the Republican Party, the working class or lower middle class. Um, that resented all the cultural changes, the rise of an African-American middle class, you name it, all of that stuff. And the Republicans spent years playing the Southern strategy, in effect, in reformulated into a Northern-Southern strategy, but playing the same thing that Nixon had invented in 68, that Reagan played in 1980. They kept playing it and playing it and playing it. They played it to the point where, and I think the turning point was really 1994 when Gingrich was the speaker, they turned it into a um, a party that was moving steadily to the right because the base kept demanding the move that the, the party moved further and further to the right so you get a situation where a political party the establishment quote unquote um finally the people <laughs> a democrat told me this put it this way the suckers wised up yeah that's what the democrat told me and you can see what he's talking about, that these people that have been taken advantage of were mobilized every four years around abortion, around all of this stuff, finally said, no, 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 we're sick of this stuff. Add to that the fact that after 2008, the Republicans didn't have much to offer, you know, middle class, working class people. What, tax cuts? That's going to, you know, Reaganomics? That's not, that's not suitable to 2008. Get rid of, you know, uh, slice down on uh, slash Medicare, you know, slash uh, Social Security, privatize Social Security? No. So the combination of those two things, the Republican Party was 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 ripe for hostile takeover. It it just strikes me though. Well, l- let me back up. Um, I pretty much not pretty much uh, after the New Hampshire primary or on the eve of the yep. New, ha- New Hampshire primary, I said that if if Trump wins as big as it appears he's going to win, yep. I said he's going to get the Republican nomination. The question to me is. Having been on the ground in New Hampshire and 
talked to a lot of Trump supporters, um, many of whom didn't and don't completely buy what Trump was saying. It's just that they're so angry um, or so disillusioned that they figure, at a minimum, they have nothing to lose by voting for Trump. But if Trump were elected president, is he going to be able to deliver, you know, to the working class blue collar voter what has been denied them to date? No. <laughs> what it'll provide, it'll be a very right wing Supreme Court, so that might might help some of the people who want to see Roe v. Wade overturned, for example. That that'd probably be true under under Donald Trump presidency. But I'm not sure what Donald Trump is for. It, at all. Yeah, but see, I, I don't sense that the Roe v. Wade crowd is r- r- really uh, inspired by Trump. No, yeah. the people like, oh, the, the, the abortion people. Well, yeah, he got, well, the, he got the evangelical no, vote. No, he, he, gets, he, get, yeah. he gets the vote because there's nowhere else to go. Uh-huh. Well, what fascinates me in, is, is that, you know, Blue-collar voters yeah. are, are so yeah. are so disenchanted yeah. by everything yeah. that they're going to vote for a guy who is going to be no more able to deliver than than the Republicans before. See, the previous Republicans play them for suckers. I right. think. Right. Um, I think Trump's playing them for suckers, but yes. suckers of a different sort. It's a different. It's a different game he's playing. He's playing three card Monty as opposed to what they were playing. <laughs> who, who do you think? Well, not, not who do you think? Who in your in your view was as big a charlatan as Trump is? Oh, gee, in, in presidential politics. In presidential politics. Oh yeah. boy, I I can't think of one. I mean. Part is because you know they had to come through the party, and coming through the party is in the old days. You had to show some political chops, and you had to you know you had to know something, or you had to be a great Civil War general, and maybe that got right, you the nomination right, right. too. But you had to do something, um, you know. But Donald Trump is a whole wholly different kind of character. He's a reality TV creation. It's not so much the money. I think the money's there, but he's a he's a reality TV show creation. That's what we've got. And um, people who watch that show think that he should be president. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. <laughs> Look, let's consider the situation of the Republican Party for a moment. And um, one of the most persuasive chapters slash essays in your book, to me, was the chapter on Theodore Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. You know, you point out that Teddy Roosevelt was not quite the maverick that popular mm-hmm. history holds him to mm-hmm. be, that um, he was on and off skillful yeah. at working with the power structure. Absolutely. Now we've got the reverse. The power structure is going to have to uh-huh. find a way, the Republican power structure, to yeah. accommodate themselves to Donald Trump. How do you see that working out? I, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, I have no idea. Look, you've got the Republican Party, which was is is basically Reince Priebus, and it's the, the it's a Republican Party that actually has a lot of power at the local uh, level, and in the Congress, it has an organization. It exists. It is real. Donald Trump has himself. I mean, he's got Paul Manafort. He's got you know the people around him, but he's calling the shots. I mean, I imagine that the the Trump campaign consists of Donald Trump up in Trump Tower someplace, twittering away. Now, <laughs> how is that going to meld with the Republican Party? Um, it might, but I don't see it, especially because 
what do people like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort care about the Republican Party for? They're in for Donald Trump. This is this is a branding campaign. Um, it was a good thing to have the Republican brand, and he's. But it's it's the, the it's the Trump presidential campaign, nothing more. So we're really in uncharted historical. I think we here. are in that respect. We are. Now it's quite possible. Look, if Trump wins, then the Republican Party is going to be morphed beyond anything we've ever seen, but it's going to be morphed. If he loses, then there's a huge power struggle over the the future of the party. I mean, it's not just the establishment versus Trump. People forget Ted Cruz. I mean, Ted, if there's anybody, I mean, they may have thought that, 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 that Trump was a charlatan, but, you know, John Boehner called Ted Cruz Lucifer. So there's going to be a tremendous power struggle to determine what the public party is going to be. It could even fall apart. I mean, that this hasn't happened really since 1854. Um, it's entirely possible. But we'll see what the outcome is in November. Well, tell us, play professor. Tell yeah. us what happened in 1854. Well, okay. Well, in 1854, the Whig Party, the two major parties were the Democratic Party and the Whig Party. And the Democratic Party was being controlled more and more by the Southern slaveholders. The um, the Whig Party, which also had its, a large share of Southern slaveholders, um, also had a lot of anti-slavery Northerners attached to it, more than the Democrats did at that point. When the slavery issue opened up in the 1850s, particularly around the passage of something called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Whig Party divided on sectional lines. The Northern Whigs and the Southern Whigs, they could no longer coexist in the same political party. Most of the Southern Whigs went over to the Democrats. Um, There was nothing left of the Whig Party in the South. In the North, however, it was interesting. Um, Some of the Whigs gravitated to the anti-slavery movement, which was out there. But others of the Whigs thought that, no, what's really problems, the real problem facing the country today is not slavery, it's immigration. Because you had the, the, the largest percentage of immigration, in other words, the largest influx of people actually in American history at that point, not in terms of gross numbers, but in terms of percentages, of Irish Catholics and German Catholics. So a lot of Whigs, who tended to be conservative nativist types anyway, joined the Know-Nothing Party. And there was going to be, there was a period of struggle as to which party was going to um, emerge as as the successor to the Whigs. The Republicans, who were going to be strictly a Northern Party because they were anti-slavery, or the Know-Nothings, who had some Southern support and certainly some Northern support around the nativist question. In the end, it was the the Republicans that won out. And that's the story of the 1850s, folks. Good job. You know, actually, that just popped into my mind. I mean, Henry Adams' writing of that period came up with one of my favorite formulations of politics, that politics is little more than the systematic organization of hatreds. Yes. But anyway, moving on, your admiration for political figures is is very clinical. Uh But you seem to agree that there are a quartet that have the right stuff. You know, what's the common denominator between Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, a former Whig, Franklin Roosevelt... In Lyndon Johnson, well, they all knew how to work a political system, how to run a political, how to how to be political inside of government as well as outside. There are plenty of Pauls out there who have managed to get power, managed to get nominations, managed to even win office by playing political party politics very, very well. The strategies thereof, etc. In the case of the four people you mentioned, all of them came to power at times of real political crisis, right? In Jefferson's case, it was really a fundamental breach between the Republicans and the Federalists. Lincoln, say no more. Um, 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 and, and, and FDR, say no more. And Johnson, civil rights movement. In every case, they understood that there had to be some sort of links between 
what was going on inside of government and what was going on outside of government. And they did a brilliant job of managing the two of those, managing the inside so that they were able to overcome opposition, which sometimes is very, very strong. But on the outside, there were convergences between themselves and outside forces, the, the egalitarians, if you will, in, in, the, uh, in the title of my book, and, and to have them come along to support him as well. Um, so they're not being fractious. Um, Lincoln, for example, faced a great deal of difficulty with the abolitionists who thought he was moving too slow on slavery. But, um, and, and Frederick Douglass was among the, the, the most vociferous. And Frederick Douglass, um, Abraham Lincoln forged a friendship with, 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 with Frederick, Frederick Douglass. Twice he came to the White House to complain, and he came away, Douglass did, and he came away singing Lincoln's praises. It's a man, <laughs> and, and, and that was, and was, you know, when you think about it, he was Abraham Lincoln, born in Kentucky, inviting a black man into the White House in 1863. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. So, so, so these are people who are masters of, of politics inside and outside, and that's what makes them so special. You know, it would, it would be a little more than a poly game to ask you how you think history will regard President Obama. But instead, let me ask you what advice you might give to historians a generation hence uh-huh. in trying to come to grips with Obama's legacy. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think a lot of Obama's legacy is going to depend on who wins the 2016 election. Um, if any Republican were to win, but certainly if Donald Trump were to win... Um, um, a lot of what he's achieved will be undone. Um, so that the legacy, if you will, will be a blip. It will be a, an attempt to do something on health care and on financial regulation, which came to, came to nothing. If the Democrats win, then I think, you know, when Obama came in at a very difficult time, um, unlike Roosevelt, Roosevelt inherited the Depression after he'd been around for two or three years. He, wasn't, he was elected in the middle of it. He had to move very fast. In his first year, first uh, two years, he managed to get two big things through, which were Dodd-Frank and, uh, well, put the stimulus to the side, Dodd-Frank and, and, and the Affordable Care Act, um, two major reforms. That's quite something. Then there's another phase of, of the presidency, which is more difficult. And I think that in many ways, the, the, the convulsions of the um, the second half of the of, of, of the Obama presidency into the first half of the second term um, had to do with him shedding uh, an image of himself and shedding an image of the presidency which he entered office with, and that is the idea that somehow as a postpartisan he could somehow yeah. bring together the, uh, the the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, I think that idea. Well, by the time he got to 2012, he realized that's not going to work. Um, and certainly by the time we get to 2014, it's not going to work. So in some ways then, depending on what happens in November, um, paradoxically, um, President Obama, I think, will be regarded as a, as a very important president. At the same time, had to shed his illusions while yeah. in office. Well, this seems like a natural place to bring this installment of the scrum to a close. Thank you, Princeton historian Sean Wilentz. His book, The Politicians and the Egalitarians, The Hidden History of American Politics. If you want to understand the current political moment, this book will suggest some of the currents that carried us there. Thanks for coming. Oh, Peter, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to The Scrum. You can find us online anytime at blogs.wgbh.org scrum. 
where you can catch back episodes. You can tweet me at Peter Kadzis, K-A-D-Z-I-S, and you can always email us at thescrum at wgbh.org. You can email us to tell us what we got wrong and what we got right, or to make a suggestion or uh, a topic for future discussion. And of course, you can find us online at iTunes or at any podcatcher of your choice. Our producer is Jason Turetsky, our engineer, Doug Shugatz. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. I'm Peter Katz.